Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian Gottlieb. And we have some bands to talk about. Or rather, we kind of did that last week. And now we get to talk about the decklists that have sprung forth from those bands. Yeah, this is a interesting time. Usually we do a bigger picture like deck dump show after we face some bands because there's a lot of new stuff to parse through, a lot of new stuff to uh, see how it's shaping the format. But this time, I think the effects are a little bit more subtle. It's not like there were huge sweeping changes or a dramatic card like Stoneforge Mystic or Jace the Mind Sculptor to really set the formats on their ears. So instead, we did a little bit more focused this time. Yeah, so there were small changes to Pioneer and Modern, which are what we're going to be talking about. Pioneer was Oath of Nyssa is unbanned. And then in Modern, Arkham's Astrolabe got banned. And yeah, like you said, it, th- those are small changes, not only just because it's you know a single card difference in each format, but also because Astrolabe was a thing that was like propping up one archetype and then that archetype got weakened, not completely killed. And then you get to see the tiny ripple effects that happen throughout the format. And they're not big sweeping changes. Modern is mostly still just modern, but the power level is a little bit more in line than it used to be uh, thanks to the removal of Arkham's Astrolabe. And I think it just looks like a better format overall. I think so too. Uh, We were a little skeptical of the necessity of the change, but that doesn't take away from the fact that the end result was probably going to be improved. And I don't think we were trying to argue that the format wasn't improved by its removal, just that it wasn't improved to the degree necessary to necessitate a, uh, a removal of the card from the format, basically. Yeah. Also, you know, the timing was weird and there are a lot of things going, going on with it where it's like, why, why this card? Why now? Some of it didn't, you know, really make a whole lot of sense, but regardless, yeah, I mean, that card being banned is I think a net positive for the format. The circumstances around it getting banned are kind of strange, but ultimately, you know, thumbs up for me. It, It is a card that I thought was going to be banned eventually. Same. Same. And we got it done. So now the only thing that's left to do is analyze this new format. I did it already, thankfully enough. I I built a. I'm going to go do something else then. You go ahead and tell everyone about it. Well, I built a Demir control deck a couple weeks ago that I think is busted. Yeah. You know, okay. I I really like your deck. It should be no surprise because it's a low win condition control deck. Yeah. Does a lot of the things I love to do in Magic. There is a bit of a sticking point, though. And. Maybe I have this completely wrong. And a lot of what I saw in these deck lists point to me possibly having this wrong, but also provided some more backup for this theory. And it's a really interesting point of almost equilibrium we're trying to reach. Veil of Summer strikes me as the best card available in modern at this point, or at least the most capable of shaping a format in a certain direction. And your deck has the most pronounced weakness to Veil of Summer you could possibly have being a Demure control deck and focusing on exactly the type of things that Veil of Summer is meant to invalidate. What do you uh, say to it's that? It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. You don't care about it. Just, so I, I agree with you that as far as raw efficiency goes and things that are able to uh, set up basically like these game winning exchanges, right? You know, think about where like I invest 
three mana into my Liliana of the Veil or whatever, you Cryptic Command it and I Veil of Summer, right? It's like that, that's like a backbreaking exchange, especially for a deck like the Demir Control deck that I had where, you know, you're already kind of light on answers to permanence in general, right? Like right. your biggest defensive tool is a thing that says counter target spell. So yeah, that that should be in theory kind of backbreaking, but for a deck like that, and also a lot of the blue decks that exist now that, you know, have Uro or Stoneforge Mystic or whatever, I think they are better at dealing with like a resolved permanent or opponent getting a two for one than you think. It just depends on like, how early it happens and what tools are at your disposal. Okay. Does that uh, make sense? Like if, if you play like Ren and six and I play Arc Major Charm and you Veil of Summer it, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm very far behind. The game is very early. I'm not set up to deal with this. I will probably lose. But if, if this exchange is happening, like when you have access to more mana or whatever, I think it's pretty easy to just like take your lumps, let your opponent get a couple cards up on you because you're recouping that card advantage in other ways. Right. I mean, this speaks to the exact, exactly the type of Veil of Summer decks I think we should be seeing more of. Decks that can punish early in the game. Yes. Uh, yeah. st- stuff like, I, I, f- I hate every time I say these words, I get bitten by it. And we've done it many times on this show. But stuff like John. Niv Magus Elemental. Promising. No, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> I have that out of my system. <laughs> stuff like stuff like Jund looks promising to me right now. Yeah. We can force those type of exchanges. Dude, and, Pro Tour London, I got bit by that too. Don't do uh, it. Yeah. Yeah, I know. We We've... Both done it a few times now, but again, all the hallmarks are there and it's really interesting to see the adoption of Veil of Summer be split. When I looked through these deck lists, there were some decks that you could tell they were built in a way that they were meant to maximize Veil of Summer and they saw it as a key card in the format. And then there's some deck choices that just say, okay, well, this is a really effective choice against Veil of Summer. And I don't know if that was the primary motivation, but it's certainly some upside. And then you see some decks that have access to the card and are just like, Nah, not really interested. Well, it, it's funny, right? Because modern, during a very large portion, you know, maybe a span of like two years or whatever, like the narrative was play the deck that people aren't sideboarding hate for. You know, it's yeah. like, oh, well, if people have like cut their graveyard hate, then play Dredge. Or if they've cut their Stony Silences, then you play Affinity or something. And Veil of Summer is as powerful as those cards, right? And if you are thinking about like playing Jun or some slow mopey control deck and everyone has four Veil of Summers, that's probably a bad idea. You might be good in game one, but you're going to get way worse off post-board. And I think there are some decks that that mitigate that. And obviously like Veil is beatable and Rest in Peace was beatable and stuff like that. So it's not like, you know, you're straight up losing or whatever, but you're definitely operating at a, a deficit. But I don't know. One of the things that you could do, for example, is like play a blue deck that closes the game with something like Scape Shift. So your opponent mm-hmm. forces through a threat or gets a few cards up on you and you just find a way to end the game. And I think that's one way to do it. The discard decks don't have it so easy. I think that if you're playing Thoughtseize into a bunch of people playing Veil, that's probably just a bad idea. You can do similar things where it's like, okay, you have Veil of Summer, but I'm going to play a bunch of Tarmogoyfs and Death Shadows and just kill you and your Veil is not going to matter. You know, but I think those games are more rare. Okay. Are there any specific decks from the past few weeks that you really want to hit on as we do this discussion? I know I pulled a few. What caught, what caught your eyes you were breaking down this format? I know we just had a big PTQ, which had some pretty noteworthy results. 
Yeah, well, I, so first let me say that I agree with you that Veil is is busted and a very good cyborg card, and people should be playing more of them. Okay. I, I didn't want to, like, anti-poo-poo Veil of Summer, like, oh, my mono counterspell control deck beats Veil. Like, you know, that's that's not the point I was trying to make, just that it's not game over necessarily. But yes, people should be playing more of them. Yeah, PTQ was won by Eldrazi Tron. So if you've been paying attention to the format, you know that this is probably the winningest deck on Magic Online, at least at the moment. And it, to me, it's always funny when this deck is doing well because it's the baseline for fair. It's like when Jun was the best deck, basically. It kind of reminds me of that. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. And there's actually a lot of similarities between the deck. You play to like points of parity a lot. You find yourself in like, hellbent situations which is weird with a deck like eldrazi tron you'd assume if you play your spells you have just won but it, it doesn't work that way in part because you're forced into many 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 mulligans with the deck right it's just what you sign up for so a lot of times you're just waiting on resources to arrive and i find it very interesting that these decks have picked up a little tool with the release of M21. I don't know if I'm over the moon about it, but you're seeing Maze Mind Tome in all the Eldrazi Tron decks. And it seems a little underpowered, but if you think about routinely being placed in these situations, and anyone who plays Eldrazi Tron knows this is what you live in. You live in that moment where you just need to find a resource, some way to start the game snowballing, and it'll happen very quickly. But it's tough to cross that bridge sometimes, and it seems like the tool they're using right now is Maze Mind Tome. What do you think about that pickup? So I look at it like, you know, how, how do you ideally want the games to play out? It's like, sure, maybe you Tron them on turn three or turn four. Maybe you expedition map into an Eldrazi temple and play a Thought Not Seer and play Chalice of the Void on one, stuff like that. And I, it, it's really hard for me to come up with a scenario where I'm just like, yes, Maze Mind Tome on turn two or whatever. Like, that's what I want to be doing. And those scenarios where I'm happy about it is basically like zero, but I also realize that the deck struggles when it's not doing the things that it wants to do. Like, yeah, you do mulligan aggressively for faster thought not seers and for chalice of the void and stuff like that, but you don't always get them and you could use something to bridge that gap a little bit. And I think Tome does a pretty good job of that mostly because it's colorless and you don't have a lot of options, yeah. but uh, yeah, you get the the early scrying, and then, like you said, the deck goes hellbent pretty quickly, and you are trading resources for the most part, and then you'll draw, like, a big walking ballista or a planeswalker that, like, you know, gets you another card, and then you kind of, like, snowball from there. But, yeah, a lot of the time, is you just you end up hellbent. You trade a bunch of resources, you end up positive on that exchange. Maybe you have, like, a chalice in play, locking out some of their stuff, which is going to help you going longer, too. But like you do need something and people were playing like Seagate Wreckage to map for, which I don't really like because it's, you know, mana intensive and you have to be hell bent and not just like flooded. Right. Yep. You could you could just have two lands in your hand and not be able to use the wreckage. And I've seen that happen way too many times. But yeah, like the, the tome, I don't know, it, it does like the filtering and the card drawing when you're hell bent and have extra mana. And then even against something like burn, it can just gain you for life, which is also very helpful. So it's yeah. like, all right, maybe maybe this is better than it looks like on paper. I, I think the for life thing is something that wasn't readily apparent to me as a huge get. But you play so many games on these super, super thin margins with Eldrazi Tron and your wins. Sure, there's the spectacular ones where you, you know, 
turn three have Tron and do something ridiculous. That's always going to be part of this deck's DNA, but it's rare. And instead, it's more about cobbling together the best things. And when I was thinking of Maze Mind Tome as a draw engine, I was lower on it, which is weird because that's like obviously the most powerful effect that this card offers. But when I started thinking about it as a scry bot, that's going to possibly get me a card here or there. And in some situations, get me for life. Then I got a lot higher on Maze Mind Tome. And the fact that it's just having an impact immediately on your first draw step, going two cards deeper for that first post Maze Mind Tome draw step, that's a big difference for a deck like this that is super reliant on just having something. It needs to get something. So bricking on your first draw step, getting a land can be absolutely backbreaking. You get two shots to improve that draw as soon as you you play your Maze Mind Tome. And I think that's a big difference for this deck. So I was low on this at first. I thought it was a case of wanting to include a new card where there were better options out there, possibly things like maybe Mindstone. I would have played at first blush. And then the more I thought about Maze Mind Tome, the more I came around on it. Yeah. And like in, information travels in weird ways, right? Where someone 5 0 with three Maze Mind Tomes in their deck list. And it could be that the next hundred people all just copied that person. But realistically, at some point, people would have started dropping them from the deck list if they were actually really bad. Right. And I, I think that that is the case. Like, you know, people have. They, they saw it once and they saw it be successful once. And then that kind of flipped the switch in their brain to turning this, you know, in their mind, they thought it was unplayable. Now it's like, oh, it's a consideration. I'll try this deck list. And if you had a bad experience, you would just cut them. Right. And people have not had that sort of experience. And then there are also uh, all the decks we talked about that are weak to veil of summer, like the discard decks and the control decks and, Tome being this thing that could just draw you a bunch of cards over the course of the game certainly helps in those matchups too. Yeah, I think this is just a good fit for this deck, and I'm I'm not surprised to see Eldrazi Tron get some success. I, I think we know how this deck goes. It will crush an unprepared metagame, and then as people start contemplating Eldrazi Tron, it usually fades to the background pretty quickly. So yeah. I'm not going to declare this the best deck in modern or anything like that, but I think it was an excellent choice for this PTQ and probably an excellent choice for a few more weeks going forward until people appropriately adapt. It's the best deck right now. And it also makes me happy in that it's a fairly good villain to have because it is relatively yeah. fair. Like, like like we said, you know, you have the Tron things, you have Eldrazi temples, you have these things that can create very snowball-y situations early, but at the end of the day, like this is basically Jund and it is very fair and you can beat it if you actually want to. So that's a good villain. I also appreciate the good games with and against Eldrazi Tron are actually a lot of fun. There's, There's a ton of blowout games, don't get me wrong. And anytime the Tron lands are involved, people have a little bit of salt built up. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but I, I've played a lot of interesting games on both sides Same. with Eldrazi Tron involved. So I, I do like seeing this being a big part of the format. Yeah, uh, PTQ is won by the Tunneling Cat, by the way. And then second place, Hey Pharaoh, Azorius, Stoneblade with Shark Typhoon. No more Spell Quellers. Uh, it's, it's Shark Typhoon all, all the way down in modern. Yeah, so when Ikoria came out, I wrote a few articles about the impact of the set on older formats. Now, obviously at that time, companions completely powered up. So that dominated the bulk of my discourse on the set. 
Shark Typhoon was a card I was very much on the fence about. Like you saw its potential. And I think when I talked about it in Legacy, where it's also seen play, I said something to the effect of it wasn't clear to me that it was actually better than Decree of Justice, which had seen no play for ages. And I don't even know if Decree is modern legal. It's not like snuck in there in Modern Horizons or anything like that, is it? It's not legal. Okay. If it were, would it see widespread play? No. So I think Typhoon being mono blue means that it is going to show up in more places just automatically because you could do things like build Demir or Teamer or whatever. Right. So it has that going for it. And until you are ready to like, you know, win the game or do something impactful for Decree of Justice, it takes a lot of time. So if that is in your opening hand, the cost to cycle it is three mana and the difference between three and two it's is, a lot. is one, but yeah, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. Like you see that with the Triumphs, right? Yeah. Where it's like, you know, how many people just like play raw Triumphs because, oh, it's like a cycling land that's great or whatever, you know? You, you just don't because three is a lot of mana. Two isn't that much. And then if you do have like an extra mana line around, it's like, okay, I'll make a one, one or whatever. And in a deck with Stoneforge Mystic and equipment, that's huge, especially since it has flying. Yeah, I think the flying pickup is the big one when you're relying on cards like Sword of Feast and Famine. There's no question that evasion is going to do a lot for you. And it's better than going wide in those type of situations for sure. We all underestimated this card. Oh, I'm not going to say we all. You and I underestimated this card. I definitely did. I definitely did. All of the places that it could potentially see play. And now that it's making its influence felt on modern, I guess talk to me about your demure control approach versus this control approach. Are you impressed by this take or do you still think that being more reactive and giving up access to something like the Stoneforge Mystic package is still in your best interest? Because I like the way this plays against something like Veil of Summer much better. And if those are, if we're conceding that those are the next steps for the format, if things are going to go more and more in that direction, then you certainly want to be in this camp, right? Well, I, I find it difficult to believe that we should be moving more towards Veil of Summer because a lot of the blue decks just did get nerfed, but it also moves them away from like Urian scapeshift things and more towards fairer control decks. So maybe Veil got more effective, but I think that blue decks as a whole are less prevalent in the format, if that makes sense. Should they be though? I mean, if you talk to people going into the last announcement, I mean, we we discussed this. There were basically three prongs you could have went with if you wanted to nerf control decks. And it's not 100% clear that in the moment, Arkham's Astrolabe was the best way to weaken control decks. Sure. You, it was the best card to get rid of, but both Uro and Mystic Sanctuary had claims to being the reason why control was still successful. And Mystic Sanctuary is still around right now. Yeah, it got banned in Popper. It should have just gotten banned here too because it, it does... It gives these decks just like an absurd amount of robustness. I don't know. They're like the fact that there are some decks that we'll talk about later that just get to like really abuse it. And then this deck, the Stoneforge deck is like, you're already on the fence as to like whether or not you want to play cryptic command. It's like, Oh, do I want to take my deck in a slower direction? And I think that's worse than not playing cryptic and playing like spell queller and just cheaper cards in general and leaning more into the tempo route. But now you with Mystic Sanctuary, you get to justify putting Cryptic Command in your deck because Cryptic Mystic Sanctuary just gives you this late game push that no other combination of cards does. And it doesn't really come at a cost, right? Like Mystic Sanctuary is a land. 
So it's like the, the cost of having this absurd engine in the late game is just playing Cryptic Command, which is already a thing that you're more than willing to do. Yeah, I think I think Sanctuary yeah, it might be next, but I like the more proactive tempo aspect of this deck compared to, I don't know, say the, the third place deck, for example, which is also a Stoneforge deck, but has Uro and Supreme Verdict. So they have Stoneforge Mystic, but also a lot of like very, very controlling elements. And I would much rather lean on the proactiveness, play things like Shark Typhoon that'll make your equipment better than do like this hodgepodge mishmash of strategies. And it's, it's super interesting that the third place deck, despite having more creatures, is the one that was like, oh, I also need to have Supreme Verdict to cover my bases. Whereas the second place deck doesn't play any copies of Supreme Verdict. It's because you don't need it. It's training wheels. Like, I'm inclined to agree with that, especially if you're doing things like Ice Fang Quaddle. It just seems weird. Right. So the, the third place deck only has one Snapcaster, but uh, the second place deck has like Path, Snapcaster, some counter spells, and then your plan is to eventually make the stuff that your opponent is doing irrelevant by equipment or uh, Planeswalkers or like tapping their stuff down with Cryptic Command and, you know, like Cryptic Command Mystic Sanctuary is just like, you know, fog lock you for three turns in a row or whatever. So you don't need to kill all of their stuff. You need to maybe like kill an early Monastery Swift Spear so it doesn't kill you, but their Swift Spear on like turn four is not really going to matter all that much. And like the same is true of like Tarmogoyf and Death Shadow, whatever. You just need something to keep your head above water. And the third place deck really just wants to like grind everyone into oblivion, which Stoneforge Mystic, I don't know, it, it kind of goes against that. It's like you start really grinding and then it's like, oh, I just killed you because I connected with the sword. So, you know, what are we doing right. here? Do you think there's a point where Stoneforge Mystic I remember having this feeling when Stoneforge Mystic first showed up in Legacy that it was simply an I win button in a lot of matchups uh, just because the format wasn't really built around it and your batter skulls were never challenged and it was just very easy to leverage a turn to Stoneforge Mystic into completely free wins. Does any of that still exist? I mean, I haven't felt that way in a very long time about Stoneforge Mystic, and I could see a theoretical format that gets back to that point, and it's worth including just for that purpose. Yeah. But this doesn't strike me as it. Yeah, because, I mean, this deck is being pulled in different directions because of how good Cryptic Command and Mystic Sanctuary is. But I think that you could make a case for cutting Cryptic and Sanctuary and just playing Spell Queller, more tempo type of stuff. But... Yeah, Stoneforge before was not really challenged. Your your Delver opponent would lightning bolt it, and then you'd put in Batter Skull, and then just be like, "Oh, I lose." You know, now things are different. Like I see, people are more keen to playing uh, things like Smash to Smithereens, or like even True Name Nemesis is difficult to deal with. Right. And in modern, I think people have those sorts of things already built into their decks, where right. a Batter Skull doesn't really beat anyone. A sort of Feast and Famine connecting doesn't beat anyone straight up like by taxing their resources. It's more about the mana advantage that you gain from it and the big tempo shifts that it creates. And that's that's how you beat people with equipment for the most part. But it, it does exist, it, but it's like even against, you know, Jund or Eldrazi Tron, if you get to Stoneforge in a batter skull, it's not the end of the game. It's obviously very good and, you know, you're a favorite probably, but I don't know, like... They, they can just like put a wall in front of it or kill all your creatures or play, I don't know, stuff like Karn and Ugin and just go over right. the top of you. So 
it's it's not an I win, but it's solid and it's close. It is still a very very good two mana threat. Okay. And like like you noted, it's it's a proactive thing that kind of like gets around Veil. Like they can load up on Veils against you, and you just stoneforge into equipment and don't worry about countering their stuff because they have a bunch of reactive tools and don't have the tools to actually kill your threats. And that's a good way to beat them versus just like playing draw go every turn. Yeah. I'm all for pressuring on a bunch of axes. I just want to see a coherent game plan. Like I I want there to be a clear point you're working to. And I think the Azorius deck is doing a better job of that right now. Not to say that Bant can't be shaped in that manner. Yeah. I, I just don't see a lot of, I don't know, synergy between Stoneforge and Uro. And obviously Stoneforge and Icefang Quaddle go pretty well together, but yeah. you could also get a lot of the same value from something like Shark Typhoon or even just playing more Snapcaster Mages. You know, like you don't really need to go into green unless you're really trying to lean into Veil. But that's like the only card that I think that you get that's worth it. So I'm, I'm going to push a little bit and I'm doing some devil's advocating here. Sorry about that. Devil but, needs more advocates always. Right, I guess so. Um, hit, me, hit me, lawyer. Let's go. So a lot of what we've talked about over the last year has been these moments where we talk about coherent game plans and shaping your deck to achieve a certain goal and therefore excluding a card. Oh, Nissa doesn't belong here. Uro doesn't belong here. But we also had a moment where we identified we were wrong a lot because those cards were so powerful that it didn't matter. They just outscaled everything else you could possibly be doing. And they were so low cost and so detrimental to your opponent's chances of winning that you play them whether you f- whether it fits the game plan or not. Is Uro one of those cards in modern where even if it's not particularly synergistic with Stoneforge Mystic and doesn't seem to fit with this broader plan, is it just that good that you're supposed to be playing it? No. Okay. It's a very good card. It does a lot of things. I don't know, just like the the life gain and the recursive threat. And it's fairly low opportunity cost. But I think that it's so anti-synergetic with things like Stoneforge Mystic and... I don't know, to, to a lesser extent, like the cryptic commands. Like this this deck, despite being the more controlling list, only has two cryptics and one mystic sanctuary, for example. Mm-hmm. But they have uh like an extra, you know, planeswalker. So they're leaning a little bit more into the tap outness. But I don't know, even if I was playing uh Stoneforge and I decided that I wanted to have Ice Fang Quaddle and Veil of Summer, I don't think that I would include Uro. And I would think that I would just find ways to lean more on the Stoneforge plan rather than just put like a random couple of Uros in my deck. It just makes more sense to me. Interesting. I, I'm mostly on board, but I, I wanted to bring up that point because if we're going to evolve past the yeah, mistakes no, we know. made over the last year, I think it's important to acknowledge how we were making them. And this felt like one of those potential situations. So I well, like what like I was talking about with the second place deck, I would much rather be in the, the tempo game plan and lean into the power of Stoneforge Mystic. And Cryptic Command Mystic Sanctuary is something that pulls me in an opposite direction where it's like, okay, this is so obviously busted that I, I should just be doing it even though it doesn't necessarily gel with the rest of what the deck is doing. Like it kind of does, um, but not, not 100%, not all the way. Like I, mm-hmm. I need a reason to be playing that card, basically. And okay. I don't, I don't think Uro does enough of that because like, are, are you lacking in life gain? Are you lacking in 
card advantage? Do you really need the ramp? Like, I, I don't think Uro really checks any of the boxes. I think that Uro makes archetypes that lean into that more viable, where you get to do like Cryptic Command, Mystic Sanctuary stuff, Supreme Verdict. Maybe you're killing with Scapeshift. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're doing Urian stuff. Maybe you're not. And like Uro is that good. It's so it's so powerful that it can like prop up an entire archetype by itself. But it doesn't mean that you should just like put it in. I don't know, like Death Shadow or whatever. I mean, obviously the life gain makes it pretty bad in Death Shadow, but you know what I mean. Right, right. Not a not a one size fits all. Yes. Yeah, I, I think there's a higher, like a lot of that conversation was predicated around standard. And it doesn't track exactly the same way to modern. Although there's been some moments where, you know, look at Oko, the cards were that good that basically you put it in everything. That card um, was that good though. And it did it, everything. It was. It was. It was. It was. It was a threat, a defensive tool, life gain. It. It just turned off so many like good artifacts. It. It did everything. It was a blue card. You pitch it to force negation. You know, like <laughs> everything. Very few things that that card was bad at. I agree with you, but we're gonna keep checking in on this question. I. I think it's gonna be one of our like points of priority throughout the next year, just to make sure we're not making those same mistakes again. Uh, but yeah. I'm comfortable with the answer you arrived at. Yeah, it's it's good, and I don't know. I I agree that I have definitely bitten that on a on a few different times. You know, where I'm just like, no, it doesn't make sense in the game plan. And eventually, I end up like coming around to it, or just realizing like that you can play cards that are not part of your game plan just because they are so good. And I agree that for the most part, that stays true in standard. But modern is such a vast card pool, and if you want to lean into the tempo aspect of things, because that's what Stoneforge Mystic pushes you towards, there are uh, basically a never-ending list of cards that you can use to get to that goal without having mm-hmm. to just be like, oh, well, I need to you know, get some power level back by playing Uro or whatever. In standard, I think it's like, well, I have the tempo stuff, but it's not really all there. And then should I just be playing like Uro and Nissa? Yes, probably. And I yeah. think that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Yeah, that that's good. That I I appreciate you checking me because not a lot of people do that. Happy to fulfill my role as the the police of power here on the uh, the cast. Make sure I mean, always... don't don't like flippantly pull out your devil's advocate card. But I think I think <laughs> I do think that this is a reasonable point to check me on. You know, because it's it's Uro, and it yep. it does fit a lot of what you're talking about. Where it's like, is this just so good that we're just supposed to play it? You know. I just had a vision of like an anime style. I'll play my devil's advocate card constantly interjecting in in your podcast. Yeah. Nightmare fuel. Uh, moving on. Eighth and ninth place decks in this PTQ were both wilderness reclamation decks. And I know you love that card. Oh, ooh, they also have Nexus too. Yeah. Love is, it's a lot. Um, I appreciate what this card is capable of. And one of the things, because we're going to talk a bit about Pioneer next, one of the things that is becoming increasingly clear to me, and this actually plays in Historic as well, it's not about the payoffs for Wilderness Reclamation. It's about the card itself. As I have said for a very long time, it's just a almost unfathomable amount of mana. You and I have talked a bunch about my experiences lately teaching my wife to play magic after uh, 13 years of being together. Now she has taken an interest in the game and she's really enjoying it and she's really loving it. And I'm, we should, we should make content on this. 
Like, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about the best way to convey my experiences because I'm doing a lot of very unorthodox things in my introduction of the game and it seems like it's working. So I definitely want to share that with people Cool. Uh, at some point. Yeah, it's basically just, you know, how how do you best introduce a, a muggle into magic? Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's something I have struggled with a lot over the years. And I am am happy she's really enjoying it and taking to it. But my point is that I showed her wilderness reclamation. I I just like seeing her reaction to things as someone who I love very much and someone who is new to this game, just to see how uh, she's going to process them. And she took it and she read it for a little bit. And she's like, you just get so much mana. And I'm like, yes, so much mana. That is exactly what's going on here. Uh, and it, it's nice to see these decks finally finding a way to leverage this card. I think these decks are very good. They had a moment in modern going back, what, three or four months ago, where it seemed like they might be the next big thing. And then they faded away a little bit. But I, I have no question that at some point Wilderness Reclamation is a key card in the format. Not only a card in the format, but a key card in the format because every single instant that gets printed will make this card better and better. And you get the extremely powerful Cryptic Command Mystic Sanctuary. And if you just stop and stop looking at how many control decks are out there, how many tempo decks are out there, and instead ask the question, how many Cryptic Command plus Mystic Sanctuary decks are out there? The answer is a lot. And that's one of the reasons why I'm pushing so hard in the direction of Veil of Summer. And it's nice that these decks get to use that card as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that Janelle comes in with fresh eyes and is just like, you get so much mana. And then me being entrenched, I'm just like, you you read the card and it's like, well, this doesn't go into any obvious archetype. Therefore, you know, it doesn't seem very good to me or whatever. Like, I can't think of an, an immediate payoff for this or well, these cards deal with it or whatever. She, she's just like, oh, get so much mana. And then it's just blue sky, right? It's like, how how yeah. do I how do I abuse this the best way possible? And I think a lot of people had that reaction in modern where it's like things like Nexus of Fate or Factor Fiction were already marked off as like being too slow or not efficient enough. Like you'd rather play Jace instead of Factor Fiction or whatever. And the, the players who worked on this archetype a lot. And I know that uh, Autumn Burchett was one of them. Right. It, it's just like, they're not hindered by those constraints, really. It's like, yeah, this card does something really sweet. How can we make it as powerful as possible? And I think that these decks are going in the right direction. And think, just think about this, right? Like Cryptic Command is a very, very good magic card right now because of Mystic Sanctuary. And if you get to go Wilderness Reclamation into Cryptic Command, the next turn you have access to, you know, 10 mana or more, then what what can you do with that? Well, you can find something to do yes. to make it really powerful. Yeah, I mean, it basically, if like you're willing to play Cryptic Command and there's not a lot of ways, you know, people aren't playing like Days or whatever, then this card is going to be good. You are going to play against opponents who have basically no resistance to it. And if you're willing to, play your fourth land and say, go cryptic open. You should be willing to play fourth land, play reclamation and have cryptic open. Yeah. There's just so many powerful paths you can go down once you have reclamation on board and it's not that hard to do setup on it. And it's one of the benefits of as the reclamation player of modern being a very linear format is just like 
people mostly aren't going to interact with what you're doing. And now you are both interactive and you have this super powerful end game that can outscale everything. It's a really powerful place to be. What do you think about, like it obviously took a tremendous amount of subsidization for cards like Cryptic Command to come back into the modern fray and for counter magic to matter in modern again. Do you think overall though, it's a net positive to have these cards be a factor again, or are we starting to tread a little bit too far in that direction where people will be turned off of this format? Because we have to remember that modern built its success on being something very different. It built its success from being a place where this stuff did not work. You just couldn't do it. And a lot of people love that. And us as entrenched players, we get excited when you tell us there's a format we can play Cryptic Command. Like We want to be doing that. But Cryptic Command is hated by a huge, huge percentage. Yeah, it's just like a very oppressive card to play against. And anyone who lived through Lorwyn Standard knows what this card did and how hard it made the game sometimes. And people don't always want that. So what's your read on kind of the health and state of modern with all of this going on? Is it a net positive to have some of this back in the game or is it just too much right now? It's hard to tell without live gatherings, obviously, but I, I think that most people's reaction is like, oh, cool. Like, look at this new deck. And then they play against it the first time. And it's like, well, that kind of sucked. And then the second time is just super miserable. And Mm -hmm. it just, it kind of like builds from there. So this, this is the type of thing that is cool in small doses. And I think the Astrolabe ban served to weaken that stuff a little bit, but it just meant that instead of playing like Urian Scapeshift, people are now incentivized to look for other Cryptic Command Mystic Sanctuary homes. And this is one of them. And if it remains a staple of the format, I don't think people are going to be very happy about it, at least if they're trying to play the format multiple times, you know, like you play against it once it might be okay or whatever, but that's, that's probably about it. But thankfully, I mean, there are, there are decks like humans that I think are good and are not very widely played at the moment that do stand up to these decks pretty well. And Veil of Summer is still pretty good at fighting this sort of deck because it really wants to use cryptic to like buy time and build to its end game and, you know, remand to that end too. And if you are able to stick threats through Veil of Summer and stuff, like maybe you you can just pressure them. And like, that's what this deck doesn't want to play against. It doesn't want to get pressured. Very true. It's so interesting. You mentioned humans as a next step for pressuring these type of decks, because there was one more deck I wanted to talk about. If you're ready to move on to this last entrant, it is another Mystic Sanctuary deck, uh, but this is probably the hardest Mystic Sanctuary deck I've seen thus far, leaning super, super hard on Mystic Sanctuary plus Terminus, four copies of Terminus in the deck, abusing that synergy, and then four copies of Frantic Inventory. And this is a list, this is not from the PTQ, this is from the 5-0 list. It's from Eclipse 4343. And if you go to the uh, July 22nd modern lists, you'll find this. But it's just a intense focus on maximizing the Mystic Sanctuary engine with something like Terminus. Uh, There's a Deprive in the deck. And then Frantic Inventory can go nuts in some situations with that card. What do you think about this particular build? And it shows that like there's evolution left for these archetypes too, and they can adjust to the people pressuring them. Yeah, I uh, talked a little bit 
in my Demir article about Demir versus Azorius, and I laid out the reasons why I thought Demir was better, but Mystic Sanctuary definitely makes Terminus a lot more palatable. Mm-hmm. Uh, this deck isn't really like leaning into it super hard. It's like, you know, they're not like thought scouring themselves or anything, which I, I, I would want to be doing. But certainly when you're going super hard on Mystic Sanctuary, having a very clean, powerful draw engine, like, you know, Frantic Inventory for three, for example. Like, imagine this deck has four Mystic Sanctuaries and a bunch of fetch lands, right? It's like they're going to be drawing three cards basically every turn. Yeah. And that's that's something that's just lights out. And then obviously, if you ever get a Terminus in your graveyard, every fetch land is just a new Terminus. They even have things like uh, Teferi, Master of Time, to potentially like spike the Terminus on opponent's turns and stuff like that so yeah. yeah this this is one of those decks where it's like playing against normal blue white control can can get kind of frustrating but but mystic sanctuary just makes it i don't know it just dials it up uh a whole lot because it's like all right i, I faded the first terminus i got through that they got like the two for one or three for one but like now i'm gonna try and rebuild and this deck is just like no i'm just gonna terminus you like every turn like what are you doing you know the, the game is just over at that point yeah, it really takes it to another level. I think this is all pointing us in directions about like macro choices and the type of ways we need to look to evolve our deck choices and deck building. And if you allow this Mystic Sanctuary engine to go unchecked, it's going to be problematic for you. I don't think you're supposed to go like surgical extraction type routes against these decks, but you, you got to do something and you have to attack them on the axis they care about. And this is becoming their core axis. So we need to think more about how we're adapting to a Mystic Sanctuary world. And I just haven't seen enough of it yet, which is why we see so many of these decks scattered throughout these 5-0 lists, throughout this PTQ. They're just everywhere right now. Yeah. I One of the things that I liked leaning on was very low opportunity cost graveyard hate, stuff like Nile Spellbomb, where you can interact with their graveyard and take away like their sanctuary targets and weaken their frantic inventories and stuff but it's mm-hmm. not costing you a card it's just costing you mana and i don't know there are things like scavenging ooze that do something similar but like ooze is a card that i would normally just side out against azorius control because it's just a grizzly bear for the most part right uh, but yeah there are things like that and then cling to dust do you have any cling to dust in your list uh, I had two in my Demir deck. That was like another thing that I thought allowed me to break the mirror. And then there are things like the random Death Shadow decks that have copies of Cling to Dust in them. So like, yeah, that's another good option. Yeah. And yeah, I like that card a lot. If you're doing something like Jund, one of the things that I was able to do somewhat frequently because opponents would be kind of careless, they'd like try and tap your team and like bounce their sanctuary and you could just trophy the sanctuary. Hmm. So like that shuts off their engine and stops the cryptic command for that turn. So like there there are ways that you can interact with it that are low opportunity cost. And I think doing things like, oh, well, they're playing four sanctuaries. I have to side in my ley line of the voids or whatever. It's like, that's just going to let you lose to their planeswalkers. You know, it's like right. they utilize their graveyard in a very powerful way, but they're not leaning on it at all. So you just have to find a way to work around that. Yeah, you want to find incidental pressure for graveyards, but it, it is enough to push me off of things like, say, dredge for the moment. Anything that's hard focused on the graveyard, I think you're going to catch some maybe misplaced splash damage if you're trying to use an archetype like that right now. Possibly, but I, I don't know. I think we're still kind of in the stages too where people haven't really gotten frustrated by Sanctuary or at least like these four Mystic Sanctuary decks. 
like you play against Scapeshift and they they sanctuary back their cryptic or their Scapeshift like once or whatever, and you're like, well, that's kind of annoying. But when they start doing it multiple times in a turn, that's when you're or in a in a game, not a turn. That's when you're like, oh, this is a problem. I need to board in Graveyard Hate or whatever. I don't think we've really gotten to that point. So mm. right now, Dredge might be relatively free. The there are things like Ashiok where people will play that for Amulet and Stopping Titan, and then that kind of helps you against Dredge. So yeah, there's definitely incidental splash damage out there but also yeah dredge doesn't really seem like it's super great against like cryptic command locks as long as the blue deck is able to do something else with its mana yeah i will tell you it's very hard to estimate like the pulse of the community in the absence of like the scg series like being just out there around everyone all the time right right it really drove a lot of both like my narratives, but also narratives for the entirety of the community. Like it gave us all something to focus on and a, I guess just like a media point to say, oh, this is what's going on. And now we kind of have to do it ourselves for these, especially these formats, the ones that don't get a whole lot of run on Twitch and don't get talked about a bunch on Twitter. Like I think the latter is still doing a decent job bringing these focal points to light and standard but there's no similar mechanism going on in Pioneer and Modern. And it's a lot harder to get consensus built and to get change actually happening. So again, that speaks back to like, oh, this is a weird time for an Astrolabe ban because there was no clear sense to me what was going on in Modern. <laughs> yeah, but. yeah, same. Yeah, n- normally after uh, Modern opens, like I could watch the tournament, get reports from the commentators as far as what the top players thought the format was going to look like, why they chose what they did how people were feeling, you know, going into the top eight, as far as like what the format looked like, what the commentators were burned out on, like Cedric and P. Sully were very good at creating that narrative. And it's just like, oh, look, another hydroid crisis or whatever, you know, and it's like that just become became a meme, like by the end of the broadcast. And that that translated over to Twitter and everything, too. And then just, you know, the end of the day becomes like, Hydrocrisis is busted or whatever, you know, it's like, and we, that's, that's one that we witnessed firsthand as commentators, right. you know? Yeah. We were there day one of Hydroid Crisis. And by the end of the day, it, there was no question what was going on in the format. It was a Hydroid Crisis format. Yeah. And now you have everyone kind of having this experience individually and not necessarily sharing it. It, it all seems more isolated to personal thoughts or group chats or discords or whatever. And that sort of stuff is not really getting proliferated out to the masses, which I guess like, you know, slows the format development down. Right. It's interesting. It's like, it's not bad. It's just a new way of doing things. And it certainly has changed the way that like I am able to make content. I think like maybe a net negative on my level of assessing the format, uh, not being able to be there a week in and a week out, but it's, it's just different. It's something to adapt to. And I mean, just like everything in our world right now, we're all adapting to very different circumstances and magic is certainly not immune to that. Yeah, so it it might take some time before modern actually shifts and everything and someone someone might figure it out on their own. Like someone's got to be the first to be like, okay, this is the way to actually beat up on these sanctuary decks without costing myself a whole lot in deck building or whatever. And maybe that person does well and their deck list gets published and it kind of happens like maze mind tome where it's like, all right, people copy it and try it and find out that it works and stuff like that. I mean, it's probably going to be a little bit more nuanced than that where it's like, did you know that those Nile spell bombs in the sideboard were supposed to be for this 
Azorius Terminus matchup or whatever, you know? Uh, so it, it could take a, a lot longer than if we had this discourse just more public facing and with more people. All right. But yeah, I, I don't know, man. My my conclusion after seeing that PTQ and everything was like this. This looks like a modern format I like. It, it seems like the macro archetypes are all very well represented. It seems balanced and it seems like the matchups have a fair amount of interaction to them, too. Yeah, I liked the format before the ban. So, I mean, well, it didn't... yeah, it was it was mostly the same, except the blue decks were sort of homogenized into Uro Astrolabe uh, versus the different forms of blue decks that we're seeing now. Yeah, I don't know if that's going to be a long term net positive. I guess we'll see. But uh, yeah, I, I have nothing but positive things to say about modern. It is a format I'm pretty happy playing at the moment, which is nice to have somewhere to go to get away from standard. Yeah. And uh, that, that might turn into historic for me in the next couple of weeks, but we'll see. Cause I, yeah. <laughs> despite some bands there, that format also has problems, but there's some stuff going on there. The, the Calvin ball approach, maybe not paying the best dividends, but I do think there's adaptations to be made in historic. And we're going to come back around to historic at some point in the future. We're going to do a full show on historic. Definitely. Uh, as we get ready for the arena open. Yep. Uh, but as of right now, we can also talk about Pioneer a little bit because Oath of Nissa got unbanned and I don't think people really expected it to change much. For the most part, it's a card that adds a little bit of equity to certain archetypes, but doesn't necessarily create its own archetype. And that's basically what we've seen happening. Like it's shown up in like some green decks and some Kethis decks and... Uh, Niv Mizzet, just like the pretty obvious places that we thought it would pop up. Yeah, no real surprises thus far in what I've seen from the Oath of Nissa decks, but I think you didn't you didn't need something drastic for that format. Again, Pioneer is a format I was enjoying. Now, I was very critical of the decision not to ban more in Pioneer, despite my enjoyment, because I think. The player population at large was not enjoying it, and that's way more important than my personal feelings on the format. I don't know that this was the shot in the arm that the format needed, but as I went through the decks from the past week or so, there were some some bright spots and decks that really looked on par for power level in the format that could maybe do something in the future. Yeah, I think so too. And I, I don't know, something something you just said made me think that maybe pioneer should have a, a heavy handed ban list approach. This is, this is just me going to be spitballing and like, we don't have to talk about it, but it's like just a thought I had and I want to share where it's like, maybe you should just like very heavily ban things that are like not fun or don't create great gameplay or whatever, not necessarily for power reasons, but like say, say mono red prowess or whatever starts, you know, being like, too good or too obnoxious or like too consistent at what it does compared to everything else. And it's just like, whatever, ban Soulscar Mage. Like we're not, we're not banning for power level, but it's just like to bring things more in line with each other and to make the format healthier and more fun. I think that could be an interesting approach. You know, I am all on board for weird approaches. The only thing I ask is just disclose it, be clear right. about it. Yeah, yeah, of and, course. And then I'm, on, and then I'm on board, but uh, yeah, anything is fine as long as you're clear about it, I think. Yeah. Just the, the thing that strikes me about Pioneer is like this was not curated to be a format, you know, like this. Right. 
There's no purposeful thought around these cards. They just got mushed together. Yeah, and at no point was someone testing like Origins plus, I don't know, RTR standard and like how those cards interact or, or whatever. Like those were not meant to be decks or necessarily be played in the same format because, you know, something like Modern has a wider card pool and those things would likely not be powerful enough to actually exist in the format. But like now it's like you have some things with that are very obvious problems or at least like pain points in the format where it's like, yeah, it would just be kind of better if this was not here, you know, like if, if we were releasing this as a format, like building it from scratch, would we include this card? And if the answer is no, I say just like get rid of it. And like, that's how you curate the format, but that probably should have happened months ago. Agreed. Yeah, there was a point where there was some license to do that. And I guess it should have been extended a little bit longer or maybe should have been extended in perpetuity. And can you get people to buy into a format though when you're banning things all the time? They're complicated questions and I understand there's no correct answer. But uh, yeah, clarity is always king in my eyes. If you're clear about your goals, then I'll do my best to support them. Yeah, I I think we're we're too far past that. But like, say these were the sets that were in FFL or whatever. And one of the cards is just like, eh, this is like kind of annoying for various reasons. And for whatever reason, it's like things like soul scar mage, again, completely hypothetical card, not like a real example of a card that I think should be banned or whatever, but like say that is causing problems. And that was like in the new set or whatever, like you would just cut it or change it or make it serve some other purpose. Right. And for whatever reason, new formats like pioneer it's like well that card just exists and it's like part of the format you know like it it just becomes untouchable because it's innocuous and i don't think that's right i agree with you yeah anyway neither here nor there anyway good player 95 5 owed with wilderness reclamation and at this point i'm i'm kind of towing the line between like i am sick of this shit and also man these decks look sweet and i guess i'm just a reclamation player in every format but this is one of the ones that looks actually like kind of in line and kind of sweet yeah, there's no huge outliers. I mean, other than Wilderness Reclamation and Uro, the things you would expect, but this deck operates in a way that seems like it should put together some fun games. There's Sublime Epiphanies here, Teferi, Master of Time. So really highlighting some new cards with this deck. It gives me hope to the quality of this deck because this is a deck that really couldn't have existed a few months ago. Of course, Shark Typhoon, part of the equations now. So this approach to Wilderness Reclamation and Pioneer looks a lot more like what's going on in Standard, uh, minus the red spells, of course. We're just straight blue-green here. In most instances, we're rooting against Wilderness Reclamation, right? Because it's so infested in Standard and it's starting to creep in. But where the villains are Lotus Breach and Inverter of Truth... (laughs) This one's okay. Yeah, I'm pretty happy to root for this deck. And I thought this was a particularly well-built version. So I just wanted to highlight what good player 95 was doing here. Uh, You can't highlight Sublime Epiphany without talking about Torrential Gearhulk too, because those cards work incredibly well together. Yes, they do. Almost a little bit of a a lock type situation. Its own Mystic Sanctuary, Cryptic Command vibes. You gotta work for it. Those two cards. Yeah, you gotta work for it, but it's there. Uh, Yeah, like this this deck is uh, maybe not the villain currently, but certainly could be in a future format. And I think that's okay because their end game is just like, uh, play big gear Hulk, I guess like that's that. Yeah. That's the best thing we have going on and they're Simic. So they don't have a lot of ways of interacting and, you know, Oko probably would have solved that problem, but whatever. And since they're Simic, they 
just have to play like some kind of mediocre cards. You know, it's like there's a mishmash of things like neutralize and sinister sabotage because there aren't better options in Pioneer for Simic for this sort of deck. That's kind of like combo controly, and yeah. that's that's a good thing. That means that it's it's you know never really going to be the villain unless the current villains get taken down a peg. Yeah, you could you could see a lot of ways to play at this deck. Just like pure yes. aggression is a very good one, but also like disruptive aggression should be something that really pressures this deck. Something like mono black. I can't see this deck having a great mono black matchup. Doesn't uh, seem like it. You just can't answer anything and you get disrupted just enough to keep you off pace. I again, you're asking Uro to carry a lot of the load and that's a powerful card, so maybe it can, but I have a feeling you're a dog there. I haven't played with this list, so maybe I'm proven wrong, but I, I don't think so here. Just not a lot of inter- interactive spells to lean on. Yeah, my first instinct was, all right, there's some stuff that I want to change. And then this this was like a week ago when the list first popped up. And I went through Scryfall looking at Simic Pioneer stuff. I'm just like, there's got to be better options than these things, right? And there just like wasn't. So mm. yeah, my first instinct was like, I want to change some of this stuff, but... I don't know. Yeah, I think if I want to take this deck for a spin, I just kind of have to copy it as is. Yeah, we'll see if that evolves over time. Like we said, every instant printed while Wilderness Reclamation is around gets a look. Uh, So this is one I expect to continue to improve over its lifespan. Yeah, and then uh, Wilderness Reclamation, like Teamer Rec basically, like just started doing well on arena kind of thanks to jumpstart and just like you know things like magma quake or whatever and it's like oh that Mm -hmm. looks kind of cool you know so a lot of reclamating to be doing if you're into that sort of thing teamer wreck in every format dude that's kind of where i am which sort of sucks but it is what it is yeah might be some other answers here let's talk about some some other new stuff in pioneer curveying hay what is that good enough i have i have no idea how to pronounce that that's a moto screen name. This this one is Kethis with Oath of Nyssa. Difference is, this is this seems super obvious in hindsight, right? Like playing four copies of Neoform, and then that's how you find like your Uro, your Tashar, your Luris. They even have a Sidisi Brew Tyrant. And yeah. obviously that can set up Kethis and it's on the cheap. So you have like uh, an additional mana to maybe start doing combo-y things on that turn. And yeah, Neoform just makes it so you have additional copies of Kethys and your opponent's never safe. I just thought this looked like a really good take on the Kethys archetype. Kethys is fine. Like the base builds of Kethys, they're completely reasonable, but they aren't challenging the status quo in my experience thus far. Like they don't do anything faster than Lotus Breach. They aren't quite sticky enough to really inconvenience the control decks and their combo kills a little bit clunkier than something like inverter. So it's, it's a good deck. It just feels a step behind everything else. So I want a new angle. I don't know if Neoform's it. Haven't played with this list yet, but as soon as I saw the deck, I was like, Oh, well, why didn't we do this before? Right. Like right. you just have access to so many powerful wrinkles and, New lines are opened up when you're able to go get your Luris at will, and you're not giving up a whole lot by including Neoform in my eyes. So no. I, I really like the way this deck is built. I don't know that it moves like the clock forward enough to make this deck any better. Where it's getting better is in spots where you're being challenged by like 
middle of the road decks or a deck that is trying to outrace you. I think you'll mostly found, find the answers now. It's just those really hard poles are still going to present a problem for this deck. And you've got to figure out those answers. But you go to the sideboard and this is actually maybe the highest selling point of Neoform because if you find a creature that answers those problems, you're good. You can go find it reliably. And I don't know if this incredibly bizarre list <laughs> of creatures that are in the sideboard are the answers, but there's a lot of stuff here that I'd have to think about like, oh, did we actually just solve what we've been struggling with? There's an Adranith Magistrate, an Erebos, God of the Dead, Carvec the Spiteful, Kalidus, Campbell, Lavinia, Tomic. So... You can do basically anything. You can go get whatever legendary creature you need to get for the situation uh, or non-legendary if you find the perfect answer. But you got to put it together and figure out exactly what you're trying to do. Maybe maybe we did it here. Maybe this is just the next step for Pioneer. It's Kervec, I believe. Look, you know I'm not going to pronounce anything correctly, much less and, and a, normally, a name spelled like that. K-A-E-R-V-E-K. What is that's so nonsense. normally, normally I wouldn't correct you, especially in this case, because I don't think you're ever going to say Kervec on the podcast again. However, Kervec's Torch, Kervec's Spite, Kervec is like an iconic magic character who is like snuck into a lot of names of cards that are also kind of iconic if you're, you know, if you've been playing the game for 25 years. So. Right. And I have been pronouncing it wrong for 25 years. And it's really hard to get away from that because like when I first saw this name, I was obviously just a young child playing with no one but my brother and no one would have ever corrected me. So when I cast my Carvex torch on him for 25 years, I, I just rolled with it. Now I have to relearn everything I thought about the world and get to Karavec the Spiteful. I don't know if it's like Karavec. I, I I just like Kervec. I think it's I don't know. It's 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 snappy. It doesn't have that extra enunciation in the middle. It, it just makes you sit makes you sound Kerevec. like very hipster and uppity. <laughs> when I add the extra syllable, yeah, yeah, I do that a lot. You Actually, it's it it's Karevic. It's pronounced Karevic. And I don't even know that I'm pronouncing it correctly. It's just like that. You know, I, I feel the same way as you, where it's like, oh, this is like this really weird name. And I say it one way or I speak it that way in my head. But then you like go to tournaments and you have people like casting Caravex Spite against you. And that's that's how they say it. And then just at some point like that becomes the consensus to me is like, well, 80% of people say it this way. So that's it must be what it is. It's like Garrick versus Garuk or whatever. Right. Also, there's the scenario where both are correct, right? There's There are regional dialects and like the way we pronounce things changes based on where you are. So I don't know, maybe, maybe we're both right. Well, in, in Richmond, Virginia, in my office where it's me and three cats, that's, that's how we pronounce it. So that's our, yeah, our regional dialect. The cats were instrumental in instituting that policy, by the way. They, feel they didn't object. About it. They didn't object when I said Caravec. So. All right. And they do object quite often. So if they're staying quiet, then you know they're on board. Yeah, or they they're just sleeping. You know, they they got tired of me not responding to their objections and just went to bed instead because it's the next right. best thing. But so the sideboard is actually the thing about this deck that I didn't really like. Where I was just like, there's no way that playing like se seven bullets for Neoform is correct because it's not like the bullets are are GG in a lot of cases. It's like, are you? I mean, I guess like the Tomic against Lotus Field is probably pretty good, but like, mm -hmm. I don't know. Lavinia they, seems seems very good there. The, the What's your other plan? Like, what el what else are you gonna do? 
I don't know. Thought sees him, try and kill him. I don't know. I think it's good enough. Yeah, probably not. Whatever, man. Maybe this is maybe this isn't good enough either. At least you tried, right? No, I you mean, gotta, look. You this isn't like supposed to be the final list. Like this is someone in a queue trying know, out who I found know. some success, and you know maybe they aren't pleased with it either. But you got to give them props for trying. Yeah, I think you try and set up uh, Hope of Gearapore and Emery. Okay, that's probably what you want to do. But whatever. I I like this approach. the The one thing that I'm skeptical of is is like, okay, Neoform gives you access to Kethis. Does having more Kethises actually make your combo like you know more resilient, or is Neoform into Kethis like GG a lot of the time? And I don't think it is because you're not milling yourself enough in this list unless you have a diligent excavator or you've played like multiple Emrys or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know if you can like Neoform with Stitcher Supplier or something like that and kind of go that route. And I'm sort of interested in that and just making sure that's that, interesting. Yeah. yeah. When you Neoform, you have, you know, like 20 cards in your graveyard, you found multiple Mox Ambers and you can actually start going off. Yeah. How far can you break the Kethys synergies? to enable your engine basically is the question you're asking. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard. You, you can't go that far down the path, but. Well, if you get to the point where you cast Neoform and you have a large graveyard, your graveyard still, it doesn't need to be all legendary things, right? It just needs to have enough things that are relevant. Mm-hmm. And this list is Neoform in like a normal sort of like mid-range Kethys deck that goes through its deck pretty slowly and i just i don't think that that's probably the right call i think that neoform in a deck that goes harder on milling itself to make sure the neoforms actually kill people is probably the call word i could see myself spending some time with tweaks on this archetype kethis was a deck i loved in standard it's very rare that i commit myself to doing a bunch of laddering but i played that uh into very high mythic and it's probably the last time I did so. And it wasn't about like trying to achieve anything. I just wanted to keep playing the deck because I loved it that much. So yeah. this is enough to pull me back in. I mostly concede to Emma on all things Kethys. And I know mm-hmm. that she's been playing the deck in historic and stuff. So I don't know. Give her give her like a brain worm or whatever. Just like whisper Neoform into her right. ear and see what happens. Well, she is an avid listener of the Arena Decklist podcast, so I'm sure she is listening right now. And she's already at work on Neoform, or probably she came up with it in the first place. And Neoform. Already, already knows it's bad and has moved on. Well, tell me then, so we don't waste 10 minutes talking about this on the podcast. Jeez, Emma, <laughs> That what would the hell? be nice, yeah. Uh, Alex Fierro with a Demir tempo deck and... This this makes me happy. Thieves Guild Enforcer is a card that I think is good and could potentially be good in standard, but no one has really tried. And it works well with Brazen Borrower and Drown in the Lock, which Alex Fierro has in presumably his deck list. Glint's Leaf Siphoner, Murderous Rider, Rankle, Thoughtseize Eliminate, Fatal Push, Mystical Dispute. So kind of like mono black aggro, but with fewer threats and just making those threats matter. And then you get like some actual disruption out of the deal. Yeah, this feels like the start of a Delver deck in Pioneer, and that's why I highlighted it. It's it's different from the other takes on this archetype we've seen, and you're starting to see uh, Thieves Guild Enforcer pop up in Legacy, so that says a lot about yeah. the card's potential power level. I agree with you. I think it has standard potential. It certainly has Pioneer potential, 
it's got modern potential. You just have to figure out exactly how to build these decks. And this was the first really successful pass I've seen at it. So I wanted to highlight it and just point out there is format churn happening. Uh, there is potential for change still in Pioneer. So if you were frustrated by the state of the metagame prior to Unbans, I mean, this didn't have anything to do with Unbans. This is just a deck that's out there and people are working on and I, I think shows a bit of potential. So it's got uh, a new good. card, new ish card in Thieves yeah. Guild Enforcer. Thieves Guild and Enforcer. That's Eliminate the... too. Eliminate's a big pickup for every black deck. In that's Pioneer. true. Like that's an important card. Yeah, I I think it's possible to like try and build this deck. And if you didn't have Eliminate, you'd be like, ah, do I play Downfall? Okay. Right. Like you already have four Murderous Riders, but it's like, eh, maybe this deck isn't as good or as efficient as I want it to be. Therefore, I just won't play with it right now. But now you're like pretty happy with your finished product after you stop brewing and you just run it through a queue and get the 5-0. And that's pretty nice. Yeah, I see a lot of potential in this archetype and I hope it continues to develop. Yeah, there's a there's a lot I don't like about this specific list, but again, it's similar to the the Simic reclamation thing in Pioneer, where I could just go through Scryfall and just be like, oh, there are no other good options for this deck. Right. So, right. Yeah, I just look at like uh, Siphoner with like no Aether Hub and Rankle in this deck that like doesn't have a lot of sacrificial fodder or whatever. It's like, is this actually the best we can be doing? And yeah, the answer is probably yes. I've been burned enough on that. Siphoner was the one that really got me to raise my eyebrows and I was surprised to see it included. There must be some other way to do like the Dark Confidant thing in the nah. two drap slot. Nah. Painseer? Is that is that a real card? It's it's a real card, but it's not good. Not I mean, it's better. in one of the Theros sets. It's in Journey or something. Journey or Born. Yeah, we won't we won't solve this problem live on the air. And like you said, it could already be solved. Maybe there's just nothing better, and I don't want to sound like I've got it all uh, figured out here. But I mean, Springleaf like Springleaf Drum is the combo with Pain Seer, and there's not a whole lot to be doing with Springleaf Drum other than Pain Seer in a deck like this. But I don't know. Maybe you could find some something to do with it. We've we've unlocked a rabbit hole that we don't have to go down. Just highlighting and showing uh, some nice deck building starting going on. Yes, uh, with this archetype. And then finally, uh, Swarm of Bloodflies, Golgari, Oath of Nyssa, Traverse. These cards work pretty well together. And it's interesting to me because normally these decks are just like, uh, you're just pigeonholed in Uro, right? But this one is mm-hmm. just straight Golgari with uh, some Nyssa, Vastwood Seers, Tireless Trackers, Murderous Riders, some Hangerback Walkers. Love it. A couple Elder Gargaroths. Liliana Waker of the Dead, like got some weird cards in here. Yeah, really weird cards. And that's why I wanted to highlight this list. And I worked my way through them and I wasn't quite on board with everything. I mean, the cards in this deck seem very expensive. It seems challenging to really put up much of a fight against pure combo. But in terms of like a late game mid-range approach, starts to look pretty good. And we know Emrakul has potential in the format. It's certainly very powerful. One thing uh, I will note is that Jabberwocky 5-0'd a Pioneer League with Sultai Traverse and had the Emrakul in the sideboard. So that's where he feels the format is currently. Yeah, I, I understand why. You think about how linear it's been and how quickly games end in Pioneer. You can make that argument. You know, I wrote an article this week about the uh, Rakdos Pyromancer deck in Pioneer, I, which is a deck I read you and it this I morning. both really liked. Yeah, so my big contention there is that like baseline power of that deck is 
very, very high and it's very good. Just like I would say the same thing of this deck, very powerful cards here. But my argument is that it was allocating its power in an improper way and trying to do things that the format didn't really ask of it. It had the ability to go really long, but it was trying to do so without being hyper disruptive. And you just can't play that style of magic. So I wanted to propose new paths to take that deck down. And I think maybe this deck could benefit from some of the same focusing where this looks like a really powerful deck. And if you get your matchups, I think you're going to be in a good spot. But I am worried that a lot of what's here doesn't necessarily line up all that well with what's going on with the rest of the format. Yeah, and I I really liked when Luris came out and Felix Liu started messing around with Delirium decks that had that card. And he was just doing things like Grimflayer, and then there were some other lists that were showing up with like Gnarlwood Dryad and stuff like that. And Luris just pushes you in a more aggressive direction because of the limit on CMC that you can play. And now that Luris got nerfed, those decks don't really exist anymore, which is understandable. But I still think a lot of the lessons from that could be taken away where it's like, maybe you should just be focused on, you know, thought seizing people and then beating them down with Grimflayer rather than trying to play the super long Uro Emrakul endgame. I think so. I think closing speed is very important in Pioneer right now because there is a lot of ability to just win games out of nowhere, number one. Like there are cards that you play them and no matter what has happened up until that point, you now win. And then two, there's just really, really quick goldfishes as well. So you're incentivized to be like, here's my piece of disruption and now I need to kill you on turn four despite playing that piece of disruption because if I don't, you're going to get me on turn five. No question. Elder Gargaroth is interesting to you because that card is showing up in a decent amount of formats as a, I don't know, green Bane Slayer of sorts and has been doing a pretty good job of it. And I think the printing of Eliminate has made it more interesting where people are more likely to mm. play that than something like Murderous Rider where before yeah. Murderous Rider was kind of like the go-to. So now it's slightly more likely that your Gargaroth actually sticks against, you know, like Mono Black or something. So uh, that's another card that you could look at as far as uh, trying to break paradigms in various matchups. Yeah, a very quick clock for sure. So you just establish control, get your Gargaroth on the battlefield, and the game is over very quickly after that. Well, you just use it as a defensive tool too. Like I, I liked using Ishkanah for that, but... Uh, it was more of like a stopgap than anything. You know, it's like they have to commit some cards to to kill it. Like you get to do a bunch of like double and triple blocking to kill their bigger stuff. But it's mostly just a stopgap. Like eventually they'll be through it. And Gargaroth is just a thing that they might not be able to remove at all. And then you just win. So Sure. Yeah, it's interesting. Maybe like don't even mess around with Delirium in- anymore. I was already kind of like cutting Traverse. I just... You know, the main point of playing Traverse was that so you could play one Emrakul, right? And you get like a mm-hmm. little bit of versatility in the tutor targets, but I don't think the tutor targets are that impactful, especially if Emrakul is not where you want to be. And then, yeah, you just cut Traverse, play Gargaroth instead of Ishkanah, and you just play sort of mopey, like Golgari mid-range, like rock type of stuff. And that might be good enough right now. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. I- like I said, enjoying the Pioneer format right now. I know there's a lot of disappointment amongst folks for the non-ban scenario, but look, it's not my job to sell you on a format. I just think that the play is better than has been advertised up till this point, and you can still have a lot of fun with the Pioneer format if you are willing to accept those few games against Lotus Breach or Inverter where you just don't feel like you have a whole lot of control. They're unfortunate. Like you said, I 
think you'd be better served by just having them out of the format, but they're here. We have to live with them. Just write them off, move on and enjoy the rest of the good games. Yep. And I think that if they did not want to get rid of inverter and breach after the last pro tour, and they didn't want to do it in this last BNR and they keep uh, talking about how like, you know, the numbers don't make those decks dominant. I mean, they're probably going to be sticking around for a while, maybe with, organized play stuff sort of focusing on historic it might be a good time to actually try and get into that if you're looking for a pioneer type of format and granted sure historic has a lot of problems but like you get to play it on arena so it's like snappier and quicker and i mean i know a lot of people prefer magic online to arena but for the majority of people you know arena is like a better place to play and if they're going to be supporting it with things like the historic open and that's going to be like ptqs and pro tours and stuff like that i mean you have you have no reason to not try out that format at this point. Very good point. Also, we should take a minute just to give a shout out to our friends at Card Hoarder when we do these shows focused on modern and pioneer formats. Of course, we have to play those on Magic Online, and we are only able to do that because our friends at Card Hoarder have hooked us up with accounts so we can play all these sweet games. And uh, just want to say how appreciative I am of that fact and point you over to Card Hoarder if you're interested in doing a little rental service on magic online they really are a great service if they weren't sponsoring us i'd i'd still be shilling for them i don't think you can use magic online without a rental service at this point they are yeah i so you said the only reason that we can play those formats it's like i would kind of argue against that in theory we could play them without it it just makes it so much easier it's way better than juggling another collection and uh especially if you're you know only interested in like investing in like a deck or whatever it's like well there's there's so many formats to play and you have to jump around a decent amount and even if you're not forced to because of organized play like you you still might just get burnt out on a format and want to play something else and card hoarder just having a rental account is a much much easier way to do it and my experience recently leveled up because you showed me how to actually import a full deck list and and, and borrow it from them I don't know what you were doing before, but I'm glad I could bring that to the table. So I have, I have like staples on, on magic online. I haven't gotten rid of them yet. So it's like, I have all the commons and uncommons. I have like, you know, fetch lands, dual lands, stuff like that. But uh, whenever I wanted to play a new deck, I would need, you know, like 30 cards or something. And I would just like type them in one by one, basically. And I I thought that's how you had to do it. I looked around for like an import thing and I couldn't really find it, but it was, it was just like right under my nose. Like I'm, I'm just stupid for not being able to find it. And I, I believe when they send you like the onboarding email, they give you pretty clear directions. So they do, do, they do, but I'm one of those stupid people. that's like, I don't need the directions. I'm going to be able to figure out how to use this. I do. I I generally do too, but I was like, look, technology, magic, like this is kind of my jam. I'll be able to get it. And I just failed to find it, and that's not because it was hard to find. It's just because I'm stupid. So, well, I'm glad we got you on board and using the service as efficiently as it can possibly operate because it is very easy to use, very sweet. Uh, just wanted to give a quick thanks to them. Yeah, uh, they're red. Question of the week time. Every week, we solicit the fine folks in our Discord who are understandably getting angrier and angrier it seems by the week <laughs> they really do but not at us thankfully uh mostly just at the state of things and i mean we're right there with you i i hope that comes across we, we stand with you but uh yeah we solicit them for a question they send us their burning questions we pick one answer at the end of every cast and our question this week comes from tyler o'brien and tyler o'brien 
wants to know. Well, this isn't really phrased as a question. Phrase it as a question next time. It's Tyler not O'Brien. Jeopardy, man. You've made me look like a fool. Tyler O'Brien says, rank seasons, best to worst, and why? Tyler's yes, gas, will, by the way. I will comply with your demand, Tyler. I will rank the seasons, best to worst, and why? Uh, in a complicated fashion, as I often answer these questions, I'm going to point out that I think the answer to this change this changes so dramatically based on where you're living. Like... My answer for where I used to live in New York would be completely different from where I live now in Seattle because the seasons are just super different. Here, my absolute favorite is the summertime. Seattle summers are really unbelievable. And I had no idea this was what I was getting on board with when I moved here. It's just like mostly 75 and sunny every day. It's just perfect every single day. And there's then two months. There's like two months where it can get kind of bad. In the summer or overall? In the, in in the, in the summer. Like it, so, so August, August, it could push to like 85, 86 some days. Well, let me, let me uh, state that when I moved to the Pacific Northwest the first time, I didn't realize that most places just like didn't have air conditioning because the Correct. weather is so good. And coming, like I grew up in Minnesota, right? So it's like, you know, we had really hot summers and really cold winters. And it's like, you need some way to regulate that. And yeah, the Seattle weather is so good. Normally that's just like, I don't know, it doesn't really get that bad in the summer, right? But like the place that we had at at first, it was just like, didn't matter what we did, man. Two months. And I I was like trying to stream during these two months too. And you would see me on stream just like sweating buckets. Pouring sweat. Yeah, it it was gross. It was disgusting. So also, I think it should be noted that like when you rank the seasons, it's like, can you get out of the extreme heat when necessary? I think yeah, you can. Yeah, very true. I think you I, can, so. I can. Yeah, I, I would never put summer number one living in New York because it was just like super hot. Like you described, they're very cold winters, uh, very hot summers, and it's like 95 and muggy half the time and super uncomfortable. But now I very much look forward to summer. Uh, the summer has been nice. Of course, circumstances are not as nice, and that has limited my access to what I'd usually do. I'd usually be at the lake a lot of days, and we have stand-up paddle boards. We spend a lot of time just kind of floating around, enjoying it. Uh, I I just haven't felt comfortable doing that. Like I think I can get out onto the water without crossing a bunch of people's paths, but I haven't checked it out yet, honestly, just because I'm nervous, I guess I would say. So maybe as it gets warmer, because we are supposed to have some warm days next week, I will investigate that. But summer's number one here. Uh, I see I see spring and fall as mostly interchangeable. Before you get off summer, I just sent you a thing on Discord and you need to click on it right now. Okay, I'm clicking on it. And I uh. I share whatever apprehensions you have about you know going outside, even to something like you know, the beach where it's like you can socially distance pretty normally as long as it's not super packed, you know, but it's still just like anxiety inducing for me, you know? Yes. So I'm, I'm right there with you. But uh, the thing that I sent Brian is a thing that I, I found recently. If you go to PokemonCenter.com, uh, <laughs> I was looking at basically everything. One of the things I stumbled upon was an inflatable Lapras and it's $50, which is like pretty cheap considering how big this thing is. And it looks a, huge. A lot of the things on the website have like, you know, five reviews or whatever. This one has like 200. And I read through a bunch of the reviews and they're just like, this is like super sturdy, super great. 
Uh, this is my childhood dream, like riding around on a lapper's come true, whatever. And then they do like the Instagram thing where it's like, you know, the, the dude who takes his teddy bear everywhere and like takes pictures of it and stuff. Or just like lapruses being fully inflated, like just in people's living rooms. And the the reviews are just kind of hilarious. It's very meme-y. But uh, dude, if you're if you're going out on a lake or whatever, man, I recommend you get a lapras. I've heard good things. I, I am enjoying these lapras reviews. I'm I'm going to stick to the stand-up paddleboard for the time being, <laughs> but, but in the future I, I will consider using a lapras as my mode of transportation. Even if I wasn't gonna use it, I would bring it to like share with people. Maybe not during COVID, you know, that's that's kind of right. But, uh, right. just, you know, for maybe next summer or something, it's like, this is a thing that you could like bring to a pool party and just be the, the hit. It's so tall. Yeah. Uh, I, I really want to prioritize having a pool wherever I live next. And I will certainly keep a Lapras floating in my pool at all times when that happens. Good man. Returning to the rankings. I think fall and spring are near interchangeable in New York. I'd put fall first because the whole falling leaves, changing colors thing is really big. Uh, here I would put spring ahead of fall because the flowers are incredible in the Pacific Northwest and, uh, my backyard, I post a lot on Twitter, my flower pictures from my backyard, my backyard just goes crazy during the spring and it's awesome in both places. Winter is not good here. It's better than New York because it doesn't get absolutely freezing, but it does pretty much rain nonstop for most of the winter. I can deal with that most of the time. After a while, it becomes a little bit much, uh, but it sure beats 10 below, 20 below, feet of snow outside your door. Yeah. So uh, winters last in either spot. But, but you, you do New York. You do like a lot of winter sports or whatever, right? You know, like I you, do. You ski and I, snowboard and stuff. I do. And I can drive to all of those sports here in Seattle, about as far as I used to drive when I lived in New York. And the entire way there, I have no snow on the road. It's a very comfortable drive. And then the last like 300 feet as I pull up to the mountain, there's a little bit of snow. And then you get into the parking lot and there's just feet of snow everywhere because yeah. now you've reached the mountain. And it's it's a great separation and you still have access to all those things, despite the fact that you don't live in just hellish cold for six months out of the year. So I, I think my opinions on the New York weather are coming through pretty clear on, on this podcast, uh, Seattle area, way, way better. I think that we're pretty similar in that we don't necessarily enjoy the extremes very much. Right. So I am super happy when I can wear a hoodie and shorts and maybe some flip-flops or sandals or whatever you want to call them and be comfortable. You know, like that is just like really awesome, nice, chill weather for me. And that was basically Seattle all year round. So what are you shorts today? That's what I have on as yeah, I man. record. Yep. And, uh, it's, it's just so nice. And I mean, th that would lead me to, you know, probably select fall over spring just because it's like maybe like a little bit cooler on average and definitely the summer and just melting. I don't really enjoy. I mean, there's, there's like a lot of stuff that you can do in summer, but like you can usually do a lot of that stuff during spring and fall too, if you want to. And then sure. uh, winter has its own set of stuff, but like you noted, I mean, if you're really into that stuff, you can go find a mountain somewhere, probably uh, definitely not in all places or whatever. And even like, if you are doing things like skiing and snowboarding, it's like just because there's snow doesn't mean that you can, you know, snowboard in 
Minnesota or like in the Midwest where it's like all flat or whatever. Right. It's like, you do right. need like a specific place to be able to go do that stuff. So I, I also like being cold more than being warm because it's Agreed. a lot easier to get yourself warmer to a good temperature than it is to cool yourself off from a super hot temperature. You know, if it's like a hundred degrees and it's like, Oh, well have a, an umbrella and a fan or whatever. It's like, well, you're still kind of sweating and you're still miserable or whatever. But like, if it's cold and you have the heat going or you're under a blanket or whatever, it's like, that's, you don't feel gross while you're also not at your ideal temperature. So that's kind of how I feel about it. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you. Although when you said that I had a flashback of the first show you and I ever did for star city. And I think we were in Indianapolis and I remember like leaving the convention center at night and it being something like negative 10 or something like yeah. that. And the two of us just being the most miserable you could possibly be. Cause we came from Seattle where it was like 50 degrees and comfortable in the middle of the winter. And we threw ourselves into the hellish Arctic cold. Yeah. And the, the problem with that was that I, I didn't have the appropriate gear somehow, yeah. somehow when I moved from Washington to uh, Virginia in like 2016, beginning of 2016, I lost like this big heavy coat that I had that like also went well with wearing a suit, you know, it was like kind of dressy looking. Yep. And that would have been awesome to wear because like Star City required us to suit up for doing the commentary. And it's like, okay, that's kind of cool. But then I didn't really have like a good winter jacket that I could put on over my suit without looking like a jackass. So I'm pretty sure I just had like had a hoodie or nothing. And that's why I was so cold. Yeah. I don't recall having a jacket for that experience either, but maybe it was just that cold that it didn't matter that I had a jacket and I was still freezing the entire time. Yeah. I, th I think that I was, you know, maybe had like a scarf and a hoodie or something, but it's still just like not enough, you know? Uh, so I could have been more prepared for that and that would have made it more bearable. But also like we've, we've done shows in the suits where it's super hot and we're just sweating oh, a bunch yeah. and we can't do anything about that. We're, we're yeah. just going to be like, sweaty smelly gross messes like you know un until the day ends and that's just it so it sucks where was where was the show with the flea market next door was it uh louisville yeah where it was yep, just yep, yep. like sweltering hot that day we were wearing suits all day yeah that was and, a brutal one and i'm um the stupid person that smokes so i'd want to go outside every hour which is obviously like a really bad idea you know, if, if I could just like stay inside the convention center and then like hop in a, a cab or a lift or whatever to go back to the hotel and stuff, that would probably be fine. But I don't know. Indiana was also kind of weird circumstances where maybe like the show was done and we were looking for food or it was like the hotel was two blocks away and it's like, oh, we can do it. And then it's just like, why? Why are we doing this? Yeah, not good choices on our part. All right. All this outdoors talk is driving me away from this podcast and to go enjoy a nice breeze capture the rest of my day, maybe with some magic online on my patio. Magic online, not arena, not historic. No, mm, uh, no. Nah, nah. Get your stuff figured out historic, then come find me. Get it together. All right. Well, I, I just woke up and the AC doesn't really work super well in my house. That might have something to do with like me being inept and not being able to fix it, but it, it, cools the living room and my kitchen really well, but not my office or my bedroom. So I woke up a sweaty mess and then did this podcast and am, am still a sweaty mess. And I have to do a bunch of stuff to get ready for GoFest this weekend. So 
I think. All right. Well, you uh, you go in good health and capture all the Pokemon. Come back with a full report next week and uh, enjoy the cool embrace of your living room. Bring those cats with you. Don't let them suffer in the heat. Oh, dude, they love it. They love it so much. That's kind of the problem, too, is I can't have it on too cold because then they like start getting the sniffles and I feel bad. Aw, cat sniffles. Yeah, and then they get like the little cruddies in their eye and I have to be like mama bird and like clean them up and stuff. No, you have to live in a warm apartment now. So I know. Keep those cats, keep those cats safe. Their I, comfort is the priority, not yours. I try to, and I, I try to snuggle the hell out of them and keep them warm. Just mama bird all the way down. Good. That's game. Good luck.